0: fantastically read rona thanks so much for doing that reading for me um it was a particularly challenging one but i knew that you were up for the task this morning a really good long reading but i wanted us to think about that whole passage again because it's uh i can still remember reading it for the first time and uh as a young christian and just being blown away by it by the the whole story and it's one i've enjoyed and revisited over the years. And, and to me, it's a, a story that never gets old. I've heard it spoken on um, a number of times and used as a means of explaining how we can use our songs of praise to defeat the enemy, engage in spiritual warfare, and in some circumstances even insist that our circumstances change and line up with, with how we want them to be. And I've been really mindful, uh, as well, like Mark was saying to us earlier on, about that that there's been a resurgence in songs of worship that pick up this whole battle dynamic, which I guess is a reflection of the challenging times that we're facing and the way that people have been feeling throughout this pandemic. And there are those songs like "This Is How I Fight My Battles," "I Raise a Hallelujah," and "Waymaker," and a good friend of mine released a new song last week, uh, that had been written during the lockdown thing. Again, talking about the song's called Fighting Back, um, where he used his own, um, experience of wrestling with COVID symptoms to, to be a springboard for his praise at this time. So, um, look up KXE Worship and Tonic or Sure, you'll find that, that song out there. It, it's going to be, uh, one that we're singing again recently, uh, or, or, uh, uh in the 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 future of this time i think so as you can tell by the fact that i used a couple of them before i i love a lot of these songs and uh i believe that they've really got a place in the church's hymnology because when the people of god filled with the presence of his spirit sing the praise of god it's a powerful thing <laughs> i've just realized what i did there there's four p's maybe i should become a baptist minister Uh, oh right okay wait um i'm also aware though sorry i distracted myself then that if we're not careful we use these songs in a way that suggests that actually if you have a problem all you've got to do is sing at it and it'll go away and so this morning at least for some of the time together i want to remind us of all that went on in this passage why it was that victory was won and most importantly who it was that stepped in to turn the impossible situation around. But let's start by thinking a bit about praise and warfare. We talk a lot about praise and and worship, but let's think for a, a minute just about praise and warfare and what we're saying and what we're not saying when we talk about this subject. And I'm going to start by thinking about some of the things that happen as God's people praise and worship him and some of the things that don't. And the first thing I'd say is this, that, that God's not affected by our worship. And by that I don't mean he's unmoved by it, that would be crazy, but what I do mind, mean is that he's not reliant on it, or in need of it. He doesn't cease to be God if no one worships him, and he's in no way added to or improved on if we do. You see, he is the all-sufficient, constant, sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, creator, sustainer, yesterday, today and forever the same. The one who doesn't change, who's a complete in and of himself. He lacks nothing. He possesses everything. He's the totally self-sufficient one. Everything else finds its source in him. In him, all things hold together and have their meaning, the scripture says. So when we worship it, it's important to remind ourselves that God's not altered or changed in any way. Our true and authentic worship merely mirrors and declares the truth of who he already is. And the second thing I want to think about is this, that God is not persuaded by our worship. Our God's not a God who must be aroused from his slumber or distracted from his other activities or persuaded to meet our needs in some way. He's not the God of the prophets of Baal that Matt was talking about the other week, who needed to slash themselves with swords and spears and shout and dance themselves into some religious frenzy in order to get his attention. Neither is he the God who can be persuaded to do bidding by any amount of flattery or adoration or singing or long-winded praying. There's no way to wheedle God into doing what we want him to do, and there's no way to twist his arm into performing for us either. And there simply aren't any magic keys or ritual practices or charismatic gifting that instantly unlock his favour towards us, and he can't be bribed or coerced in any way. And it's important to remember as well that God's not some kind of talisman that can be held up to our problems, that ensures the victory for us in the face of our enemies. In fact, when the people of God tried to use His presence over the mercy seat of the ark as a uh, as a way of uh, uh, ensuring their victory over the Philistines, God famously chose for the other side and sent His ark off into captivity. You see, you can't simply invoke the name of Jesus. And assume that everything's going to go your way. Lots of you will remember the story of the seven sons of Sceva uh, in Acts 19, where they were using Jesus' name to try and drive out a demon that's been possessing somebody. And it turned around and said to him, effectively, who on earth do you think you are? Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? Before it, it beat them senseless and chased them out of the house, stripped naked. So we need to be careful and respectful about how we use the name of Jesus and not get drawn into the, the idea that somehow we can manipulate him into doing what we want. And the next thing I would say is this, that the that, that God is not enabled by our worship. He's not reliant on us doing the right thing before he can do the right thing. He's not dependent on us doing our part before he can step in and help. It's not by us creating an atmosphere of praise and worship that he's somehow then able to respond, and he's certainly not forced to respond just because we did all the right things. I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a fabulous musician and worship leader in in another church, and um he was bemoaning the fact that his band could produce music that sounded exactly like the professional recordings that the songs that they were singing and yet still somehow there was something lacking in the spiritual dynamic of their worship times. And as someone who who shares in that privilege of of leading worship, it was a conversation that actually disturbed me quite a bit because it suggests that somehow if we craft our music carefully and we push ourselves creatively and we become really professional, then somehow God must respond to the hard work And the effort that we've put in and the beauty of the sound that we've made. The truth is that actually it's very often that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And the scriptures exhort us to make the most of our gifts and to do the best that we can with what we've got and to play skillfully. But it's worship that comes from the heart. That really makes a difference to God, not the beautiful sound that we make, and we need to be really careful to ensure that actually what we do in is bringing God a heart of worship, so that He is honored and He is blessed in a way that he deserves, not so that we enjoy a greater sense of experience and intimacy with Him in our worship. God deserves the best that we can bring him, whatever. We get back. So some of you may ask if, if all of that's true, that God's not affected by or persuaded by or enabled or permissioned by our worship, what's the point? But the fact that God remains unchanged by our actions doesn't mean he's aloof or removed from us. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care. The truth is that he's both delighted and responsive to our worship. And in fact, When Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well, he declared that his Father seeks those that will worship in spirit and truth. It's possibly the only thing that the Scriptures depict Father God as actively seeking out. So I want to ask a couple of questions this morning about what does our worship affect if it doesn't change God himself? It's a great question, and the truth is that Potentially, absolutely everything else in all of creation is affected when we worship. You see, when God made mankind, he made us with a capacity and a capability to worship and honour him and love him in a way that sets and confirms an order to creation. It acknowledges the creator as the central focus of all things. See, our God's the God around whom everything else orbits. And when he made us custodians of the earth and told us to subdue it and have dominion over it, as Genesis one twenty eight says, he established an order to create it things that is largely dependent on how we worship and honour him, how we conduct ourselves according to our roles and responsibility in the whole of creation. And the two Hebrew words that are used there, I think it's kabash or kavash and, and radah they contain... This notion of a right and responsibility that we have as the people of God. Um, but there's also this element of mutuality and accountability, a cooperation with the whole of creation. And it's it's a rule that we exercise that's meant to be both benevolent and kind. A rule that requires an order and obedience, but also cares for the poorest and the weakest and it nurtures the broken and the hurting. When we orientate ourselves and our place in the universe towards God in worship and seek to fulfill our calling in the earth as an offering of worship to him, we reestablish that order and that pattern to creation where everything lines up with its sovereign and his will, his purpose, his rule is confirmed in such a way that everything all creation is reminded that it's good. In its origin, it's ordered, it's the way that God intended it. Just like he declared in the beginning over creation, it's good in its original shape and its pattern. Um, So when I'm talking about worship in this kind of way, because I'm not just talking about sung worship. I'm talking about a way of honouring God with all that we have. And so that everything else lines up with him. And so what gets changed when we worship? Potentially everything. Because when everything's rightly ordered in the way that God intended, with everything ordered again around him, everything starts to fall into line and his will and his purposes and his goodness, his kingdom, pours out again. And of course we get changed when we worship. Paul talks to the Corinthians about seeking the face of God in worship. And as we do so, being transformed into his likeness. Our worship of God changes us. As we come face to face with his glory. The one we were made to worship. The one who's so much bigger and grander and holier than we could imagine. And then, of course, as we get changed as well, potentially the world gets changed when we worship. Paul again talked to the Roman church about everything we do, having the capacity to become an act or an offering of worship. Romans 12. I love the message translation of this. Let me read it to you. So here's what I want you to do, people of God. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, you sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life. And place it all before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. God brings the best out of you. Develops well-formed maturity in you. And so if everything we do, even the ordinary, And the everyday can become an offering of worship. It means that everything around us, all the bustness, all the brokenness, all of the worn out and the wrong, all of that can be redeemed and renewed as we bring it before him as part of a lifestyle of worship. And the other thing I want to mention this morning is that it's true. Spiritual warfare happens. And the spiritual realm gets changed. You know, how do you break the oppression of darkness? How do you defeat the enemy in this world? One of the best things you can do is stand against him and declare the truth that Christ has already defeated him. Paul, again, talked about him having disarmed the powers and authorities. He, that's Christ, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them through the cross. And so when we worship, when we celebrate, when we sing our songs of praise and adoration, when we declare the truth of all that God has done in Christ, we force even principalities and powers in the heavenly realm to acknowledge that it's true. God's done this. That even death is defeated and Christ is Lord of all. Amen. They're forced to say. The kingdom of God comes and creation lines up with the rule of its King." as we worship and as we acknowledge that he's on the throne. But because of that, it's not directly our worship. It's not our songs that overcome the enemy, that somehow singing was going to frighten him off. Although I have been in some churches where it was Emily Possible that that was the case, that almost everybody was frightened off by the singing. But it's the sung and declared truth of all that the Lord has done that forces all to acknowledge that he and he alone is worthy and that victory is ensured because he's already won the final battle. I've read the end of the book, as the saying goes, we win. But let's go back to this passage this morning. And just think about a few things, remind ourselves of, of some of the lead up to this astounding victory and, and then, then see what was going on. How did this triumph for God's people come about? And it starts with the news of impossible arms. A huge army joining forces to destroy God's people and take back the land he promised to them. And of course, whenever you're faced with that kind of situation, there's the initial concern and the consternation that that news brings with the realisation that this is a situation beyond Judah's power to resist, we're all facing uncertainty at the moment. Have you ever faced or are you facing those odds that you know you can't fix yourself? I know that I've been in that place and it's a scary place to be, but it's what you do in that scary place that makes a difference. So in this passage, the king takes the lead and he calls the people to a national day of prayer and fasting and he gathers them before the Lord at the temple. They remind themselves and the Lord that he promised to always have his attention on this place like we heard in Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple a few weeks ago. They accept that they can't deal with this unless God intervenes and they humble themselves, which is key. They turn to him and they call on the one who gave them their inheritance and they confess that they don't know what to do but their eyes are on him. What a fantastic way to worship. They don't even presume to tell the Lord how to fix this for them. They just acknowledge him and ask that he hears them and provides for them in the solution. How many of us are really quick to tell God how to fix our problems for us, what we want him to do, how we want him to answer. But the solution to most of our problems is found in surrendering to him and asking him for his wisdom and insight. So God hears them like he promised he would. His ear is attentive to their prayer at this temple. And he reveals his plan through a prophetic word. Don't be frightened of them. You'll not have to fight this battle. The battle is the Lord's. And then again, Jehoshaphat and the people respond in worship. God's spoken through his prophet and they've heard and acknowledged the word of the Lord. And they continue in worship and praise as the king bows with his face to the ground. And the Kohathites and Karahites stand and sing their praise very, very loudly. You do know there's a huge biblical precedent for cranking up the amps in worship, don't you? Giving glory to God as he's heard them. And so the following day, this worship continues and they march out, not having a clue what God's going to do, but lining up with what he said and trust in him as they put the singers at the front leading a praise party, not the warriors with a battle cry. And the song they sing is this. The Lord is good and his love endures forever. Now, those of you that know your Bibles or know this refrain, it's taken from Psalm 136. And it's a call and response song that was led by the Levites and responded to by the people um, gathered at the temple for worship. Um, What I like to do now is just remind us of that song by joining together as God's people and declaring his lordship. So, are you with me this morning? Your bit's easy. All you have to do is repeat the same refrain after every line I say. And your refrain is this. His love endures forever. So I'm going to read you a line from the psalm. And then I'm trusting you at home to join in with me, saints of God, and to sing this ancient song of praise. Say the refrain after me. His love endures forever here we go are you ready kids join in with me as well give thanks to the lord for he is good his love endures forever give thanks to the god of gods his love endures forever give thanks to the lord of lords his love endures forever To him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens, his love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters, his love endures forever. Who made the great lights, his love endures forever. The sun to govern the day, his love endures forever. The moon and stars to govern the night. His love endures forever. And it picks up pace as they remind the Lord of all that he's done. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures forever. Brought Israel out from among them, his love endures forever. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures forever. And brought Israel through the midst of it, his love endures forever. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the seas, his love endures forever. And then he reminds them of the way that God has cared for them and led them and looked after them through all of the situations that they faced. To him who led his people through the desert with me, his love endures forever. Who struck down great kings, his love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, his love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, his love endures forever. And Ob, king of Bashan, his love endures forever. Gave land as their inheritance, his love endures forever. An inheritance to his servant Israel, his love endures forever. To the one who remembered us in our low estate, his love endures forever. And freed us from our enemies, his love endures forever. And who gives food to every creature, his love endures forever. Give thanks. To the God of heaven, his love endures forever. If you joined in with me, thanks for that. It's a song that declares the truth that our God alone is God. He's the God of gods, which of course means there aren't any other gods. Our God is the maker of all, the creator of all, the sustainer of all. He's the rescuer of his people. He's the deliverer from our enemies who remembers us in our lowest state and our humbled estate. And he delivers us and provides for us. And as the people on this occasion sing again these words that would have been familiar to them, they're reminded again of all the ways that the Lord has led them in the past. All the trials he's brought them through, all the awesome things he's done, On their behalf, he alone is God in heaven. And as they sing, they both declare eternal truth to anything and everything that might be listening. And they stir themselves and faith and trust rises again to meet the one who's always been there for them as his people. And of course, God does what he promised he would do and defeats their enemies and saves the day. Not because they sang a song, but because they believed and they worshipped the one who promised. They orientated themselves towards the sovereign of the universe and everything else lined up with this truth. When there was no hope, they still hoped in him. And that hope did not disappoint them. And that kind of hope will never disappoint us. So I'm just going to close with this thought. This is how I fight my battles. When I don't have the strength to face the challenge before me, I turn to the one who's always been there for me. I acknowledge that I don't know what to do, but I honour the one. whose ear is always attentive to my cry, and I declare his greatness and his glory. And I trust him to fight for me. Because I know the Lord is good. And his love endures forever. Let's pray together. And then we're going to worship together in song. Lord, we want to thank you for that truth. That you are good. And your love endures forever. You are faithful. Eternally good, desiring good for all of your people. Lord, we want to thank you that your ear is always attentive to us and your favor is always inclined towards us. Thank you that when we face difficulties, when we face uncertainties, when we face even overwhelming odds, we can turn to you as the God who has always been there for us and know that you are faithful and true, and able, to deliver us from all of our enemies. So Lord, we honour you, we worship you, we desire that the whole of creation lines up with you. Thank you for the promise that one day there will be a renewing of all things, and that all things will be brought back together under one head, even Christ. But Lord, until that day, we continue to sing the truth of that, that it will be so, that you are God in heaven, you are the God of all gods, you are the only one, we honour and we worship you, you are sovereign Lord King, but you are loving, compassionate, gracious friend, his favour is on us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.